The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. It's such a hot, sticky night. So it's a good night to talk about and to discuss together equanimity. And one of the things that probably characterizes our human existence more than anything, you know, if we totaled up um, all of the conversations we've had in our lives, so many of our conversations have been, you know, one kind or another of complaining with each other. You know, we're complaining about life, about the way it is. And in a way, so much of who we are, who we take ourselves to be, are these different patterns of complaining and struggling with conditions. So when we take up this practice theme of equanimity, it can be very provocative. I mean, at some level, we might understand directly from our experience how struggling is, you know, stressful. But generally speaking, what we want to do is replace the stressful struggling with struggling that will really get us what we want. And when we really contemplate, actually contemplate letting go of the struggle, it feels a bit like a death, you know, like somehow we'll be completely exposed, we will have given up, willing to become compost. So I think it's nice, you know, we have this time together for the next five weeks or so, we'll be looking at equanimity. And it's important that we um, use our actual lived experience to realize what, what might be skillful, you know, given our particular understanding of equanimity. And as we begin to apply it or use it to look at our lives, our moments, like what might equanimity be? How might it be actually functional and skillful, something that leads to happiness? Because um, in a way, in this particular path, it's both the means, it's a nice, useful expression of the means, the way we practice, as well as a quite useful description of the fruit of practice, equanimity. And so we want to operationalize that. We want to really understand, well, what, you know, how is, how can equanimity be a means to, a means leading to happiness for this mind and heart? And how does equanimity stand as a, a, the fruit or like, a, a, it's like a direct, fruit or cause for confidence, like, oh, this work is actually going somewhere. It's leading somewhere. This experience 
of equanimity to me represents something's working in my life, in my practice. Sharon uh, Salzberg has a wonderful book called Loving Kindness. For me, it's, it remains an important manual of my, my practice. I use it quite a bit personally and also my teaching, even though it's been around now for quite a while. Her book, uh, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. And in that, she has a chapter, all kinds of different chapters, but includes a chapter in each of the four Brahma-Viharas, these four emotions of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and um, equanimity, one of the four divine abodes. In the last page of that chapter, last two pages of that chapter in equanimity, I want to read a couple paragraphs from Sharon's book. I often think of dispassion as being a state of great honor because with it, we do not move into a situation with any kind of hidden agenda. There is no manipulation or covert action. There is rather a sense of sufficiency. When we can accept a moment or, a moment or experience as it actually is, out of the resulting sense of stillness, poise, and sufficiency, love can actually emerge. So instead of, you know, the way our minds are often conditioned, we think of equanimity as like, well, I'll be equanimous because I don't know what else to do. You know, it's like uh, when we've failed at acting skillfully in a particular situation, maybe then we'll resign ourselves to being, equanim uh, to being equanimous. So, like, it changes it completely if, if we... Uh, if we think about equanimity as an ennobling quality, it's like has a, a beautiful strength and integrity to it, not some feeble, last-ditch attempt to, you know, be in the moment, but a really powerful way to be in the moment. Like she says, to enter, to be in the moment without any hidden agenda. No sense of manipulation, no covert action. I mean, that's what equanimity means. It's like we can show up with a friend, show up with a particular problem in our life, show up with physical pain or physical discomfort when we're sick, without any agenda except to be fully present, to be free in the experience free of reactivity or free of struggle. I mean, that's a, that's a beautiful intention. I mean, that's something to really respect. Why wouldn't we want to just explore that way of being? I mean, just even intellectually, just the thought, not needing things to be different or other than they are. It's kind of just a sense of freshness, aliveness, and that thought like, oh, not to need things to be other than they are. Or as some of you who were here last week, I read from uh, Sylvia Borstein's book, and she also has a 
chapter on equanimity, her book on the Ten Paramis, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. And in that chapter on equanimity, she says something like, uh, everything is always breathtakingly the only way that it can be. That's really powerful. I mean, it's a powerful way to be in a moment. It's not weak. You know, equanimity isn't weak. It isn't meant to be weak. And I like how Sharon also says, there is rather a sense of sufficiency. So this gets right to the core of our practice. You know, when we're working with the breath or working with the sensations in the body or whatever we're being mindful of in our sitting practice, in our daily life practice, there's this, this choice that we make between acting out some kind of dependency on the present moment of ex experience. And the Buddha uses, in one of the discourses he gave long ago, he uses a you know, really graphic image of feeding, you know, trying to extract some kind of nutriment from our lived experience. So I'm here at Common Ground giving a talk, or you're here at Common Ground listening to a talk, and our normal, often normal way of being in a moment is we're here trying to extract something. You know, like so from the point of view of being a speaker, I might be trying to extract something from you guys or from the moment, like some kind of sense of worth that so I have something to say or whatever some speaker might be trying to get or you might be trying to get some kind of golden information that's going to change your life, you know, the, the key to success or something like that. But it's always true. It's like even when we're eating some food, there's some extraction process going on like this is going to make me happy this meal this taste and it creates this ongoing uneasiness in our lives this tendency we have to try to extract some nutriment from sense experience whether it's a thought that's a sense experience like I think about a vacation and even that thought I'm trying to get like some juice from thinking about my vacation or dredging up something from the past and rethinking about something from the past. So if there's a sense that the ego is trying to get some juice, some life energy from our relating, re way we relate to our experience, whether it's internal or external experience. But equanimity is really moving in a different direction, as is this whole path, where it really, both the means and the fruit of this practice that we do, what we call mindfulness or waking up, the means and the fruit is, you know, as a means, it's like here we are in the moment and we're practicing not picking up that impulse to try to extract something. Like, can this mind, this heart be close, be aware, and for its own sake, not aware in order to get something from this moment, but aware to be aware. 
aware to be free of needing anything. It's really, like I said, it, it's actual. It's an actual practice. So when we, when you're with the breath in your formal meditation practice, can we be aware of the breath with a sense of sufficiency, like this in breath is sufficient the way that it is? Doesn't need anything more. This experience in my body, like I've been today, both in my morning sit and then tonight and throughout the day, but more obviously when I'm doing my medita meditation practice, my body's just been really unpleasant, <laughs> out of sorts, maybe partly due to the weather, who knows. doesn't matter so much. But what matters for me is, can I relate to this unpleasant, out of sorts experience in the body without needing to get anything from it, like needing it to be better than it is, needing it to be different than it is? Is there a way for this mind to know to be intimate with this experience without creating tension, the tension of needing something from the body, something other than what it's providing in this moment? And of course, when my mind gravitates and gets caught in the mode of wanting to get something from this lived experience of the body, then I suffer because it's this way. And in order to get fed, it needs to be this other way. And now the present moment is a problem for me. And then other moments when at least to some degree there is a, a willingness to forego the feeding. I'm not happy with the way it is, but I'm not trying to get anything. I'm not trying to get rid of anything. And there's sort of a standoff. It's not, it's not the pleasant, but at least I'm not torturing myself. And then in those moments, there are other moments that can arise in that sort of place, that sort of place where we're not messing, but we're, but we're also not able to uh, um, step outside of the thought that this is not what I want. We're still aware of the unpleasantness and it still feels personal. That we know enough, there's enough wisdom in the mind that I'm not going to mess with the unpleasantness. I'm not going to try to base my existence on making this other than it is. I'm just going to leave it alone. But I don't like it, but I'm going to leave it alone. Because not leaving alone is even worse than the way it is. But if we get if we get pretty good there, not messing with the discomfort, not messing with the uneasiness, it creates a fertile ground for a shift where real equanimity can arise. Not not sort of a, 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 like a relatively wholesome endurance. You know, our willingness to endure what's unpleasant, which is a really skillful skill to have, right? Because when things are unpleasant, it's really good to have that option to be able to endure it without adding to the discomfort by struggling with something that's already this way. But if we can stay there, then it, it allows for this flipping or this transformation of the mind. 
where the mind realizes something. It realizes that it doesn't need to be feeding on experience. It doesn't need to be getting anything from the present moment sense experience. That's just a very deep habit. I mean, doesn't that seem right, like, in terms of our relationship to life? We are here. Doesn't it seem this way? We are here in this life, each of us, and in the life that we have to get something, right? To get experience, to get happiness, to get good food and good safety and, and good love. And that's why we're here. And a successful life is when we're able to sort of string together a lot of those good meals, you know, good experiences, one after another, and to minimize the unpleasant meals. But as we practice the, you know, initially you could call it more like patience or endurance and enduring what's going on in our mind, around us, in our bodies, willing to just stay present and not mess with it. And this is a, this is a, you, know, you don't read so much about this in meditation. You always hear about people in these exalted states, you know, of bliss or of peace. But so much of living and so much of sitting meditation practice is about this patient endurance with what is in the body, what is true in the body, what is true in the mind, the way that it is. With, with a ringing clarity that's repeating over and over again, if you mess with it, it's just going to get worse. If you struggle with the thoughts in the mind, it's going to get worse. It's going to get tighter. The mind will get more entangled. If you struggle with the sensations in the body, they're going to become more unpleasant. If you get irritated about the sounds in the room, the mind is going to get tighter and more, un more unpleasant. If you allow things to be the way they, they are, you minimize suffering. Right? So it's not a complete relief, but it's some sort of um, standoff with, su with suffering. You know, it's sort of like we're in this sort of careful place. There's some tension here because we know in any moment if, we, if our mindfulness, if our clarity wavers, we're going to go right back to reacting and struggling because it's such a deep habit in our minds. So we're sort of trying to maintain that resolve by mess, it's going to get worse. And there. But the more we can do that, we can relax in that place of patience and relax more and more. We're moving in the direction of equanimity, setting in motion an inevitable insight where the mind realizes it doesn't have to, there's another option, it doesn't have to try to feed off of experience. You could say, you know, from a, the mind being conditioned to the mind being unconditioned. Now, we just assume that the, the sole purpose of the mind or the heart is to pay attention in a kind of fixed way on the experiences in order to feed off of them. Oh, this is a good experience. I can get something from it. Or this is a bad experience. I don't want that. I have to find another better good experience to feed off of. So our mind is in this dependent relationship with our experience all the time. 
But when we develop patience in life, this sort of wise endurance with the way things are, then you might start to notice like the, the telltale sign or fragrance or flavor of freedom. Because the more that we're being patient with everything that's happening in the mind, in the body, around us, it's sort of like we're, we're coming into alignment with this independence instead of this dependence on sense experience, on experience itself. And, it, you know, there's different ways of talking about it, but one way is like um, just opening to the knowing as opposed to what's being known. Or the awareness, that empty awareness, empty of clinging. So, Sharon, then I'm going to skip a few paragraphs and read the last two paragraphs in this chapter on equanimity again that I had been reading from earlier. So she says... To have the radiant, calm, and unswayed balance of mind that we call equanimity is to be like the earth. All kinds of things are cast upon the earth, beautiful and ugly things, frightful and lovable things, common and extraordinary things. The earth receives it all and quietly sustains its own integrity. Because... The earth isn't dependent on what you throw down or what you do. You know, we can think of the earth as being dependent, but the earth has, you know, this, in a way, this infinite resiliency. I mean, as a symbol, as a metaphor. And you can think about that in terms of the mind, too the true mind, not the conditioned mind, not the mind that's trying to extract, trying to get something from experience. But we want to begin to intuit, to realize the mind that's actually independent. Like the earth, it's not dependent on what arises, what experience comes and goes. And then the last paragraph here, Sharon says, it is a state of peace to be able to accept things as they are. This is to be at home in our own lives. We see that this universe is much too big to hold on to, but it is the perfect size for letting go. Our hearts and minds can become that big, and we, act, we can actually let go. This is the gift of equanimity. But we're not letting go of our life we're not letting go of, of even sense experience. We're just letting go of the dependency on sense experience. And that's the whole movement of equanimity as a means and as the fruit in practice. So, as I mentioned last week, you know, equanimity isn't something, it isn't a kind of indifference to sense experience. It's not a withdrawal from sense experience. Like some meditation techniques really are that kind of withdrawal. You know, we use a particular object of meditation. Even the breath can work for this, or a mantra, or visualization. 
and we're sort of focusing the mind there as a way of disconnecting from everything else. And there's some real value in that. In fact, it's a way to get to get a temporary flavor of equanimity, this kind of concentration. But it's just temporary equanimity. Because when we really concentrate on one thing, like knitting, or the breath, or walking, or whatever it might be for you, to the exclusion of everything else, that wholeness of mind, as the mind becomes unified in that experience, in a temporary way, as Sharon mentions, there's a kind of uh, sufficiency. You know, when the mind is wholly with the breath, not distracted, not fragmented, not dispersed, there's a what we call joy or bliss, and it has this feeling of sufficiency or contentment, like everything's okay, this is enough. So in a way, the mind or heart feels full, like it's been, it's had a good meal. So it's temporarily the hunger that's trying to extract something from sense experience. It's satisfied now. So the mind is temporarily equanimous. And you'll feel this. You'll, this is something probably all of us have experienced many, many times in life, where we've had some moments where the mind has been fully present. And in being fully present, all of the, the hunger in the mind, the greed and aversion in the mind, has been temporarily suppressed. And that's what makes us full. It's not actually that we've gotten a good meal. The good meal, <laughs> the feeling of fullness, is the suppression of the hunger. It's like we aren't thinking about feeding off of experience. It's I know it's a little counterintuitive. Let me just say this again. So there's really two ways to get a sense of equanimity. One is relatively temporary. One is has more resonance, has more sort of a lasting effect on the mind. The second one you could call insight, a deepening of understanding. And this first one is the habits of being hungry, of, of clinging, grasping sense experience, trying to get something from sense experience, have been suppressed. And the way we suppress those habits is we collect the mind, the attention, around something that doesn't trigger greed and aversion, doesn't trigger the hunger, that inner hunger, that inner struggling or grasping. So that's why knitting works, you know, as long as you're, you're not trying to win a contest with your knitting. Or walking around the lake can work if you're not there to try to lose weight or, you know, striving to get somewhere with your walking. But you're just walking and, and using it to collect your mind or breathing in your meditation practice or any number of ways that a human being can collect. Washing dishes works, of course. Playing with children can work sometimes. Right? <laughs> Hearing a Dharma talk can work, you know. 
when you're not trying to extract something from the talk. Like a lot of teachers, especially on retreat, they recommend that when you're listening to Dharma talk, you practice meditation. You come into your meditation posture, you close your eyes, and you're not there trying to extract meaning from the talk. You're there meditating. And what does meditation mean? It means you're collecting your attention in the present moment. But for its own sake, not in order to get something, not in order to get concentrated, not in order to get enlightened, not in order to understand what he's talking about, or whether he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so there's no, it's just the collecting the mind, coming together, however, whatever works, basically. <clears throat> and then to do that, necessarily, when we do that, necessarily grasping, the habits of grasping, struggling, and trying to get something, it's suppressed. And because it's suppressed, we experience the feeling of being full or whole, happy, content. And then that's a temporary experience of equanimity. I mean, it even happens in moments when we're just, we get what we wanted. Because, like, if we're there struggling to get something, struggling to get something, and then we get it, for a few seconds at least, the mind is content. And when the mind is content, it's not in those moments hungry to get something from sense experience. And so what remains for a few moments is the experience of equanimity. But we don't, what we miss often in those temporary moments of equanimity is the quality of investigation. Oh, well, this is equanimity. It's like this. If we did, if we really took that time to get interested in the experience of equanimity, uh, it can be really useful. Because now the equanimity is dependent on having gotten what we wanted or on having concentrated the mind. But the more we get interested in the experience of contentment, in the experience of not grasping, not trying to get something from experience, we learn something. We learn that, oh, this is a particular way now of relating to sense experience that I'm not familiar with. Because now, you know, it's like now we're not a hungry animal. As Ajahn Amra, one of these, uh, one of these wonderful uh, American Buddhist monks, Oh, he's British, actually, but he's been uh, recently, most recently, an abbot of a monastery in Northern California. But he's got this great line saying that our, you know, our usual way of looking into the world, looking at sense experience is, can I eat it? Will it eat me? Can I mate with it? <laughs> and it's like, that's all we really care about. And we don't tend to notice anything else. We just notice if it's something that we might be able to eat or something that might want to eat us or something I might be able to mate with. And that's the hungry eyes, you know, the hungry mind, the hungry way of experience, experience, experiencing experience. But when we're content, when we've gotten what we wanted, or we've collected the attention in such a way that that hunger is temporarily suppressed, then our relationship to sense experience changes. Because now we're full, but we're still awake, you know, we're not unconscious. So we still have sense objects. We're still hearing things and seeing things and thinking things and feeling things in the body. 
that now we're relating to those sense experiences differently. And we can get a sense of what enlightenment might feel like. Right? Because enlightenment, an awakened mind, is a mind that is inherently content. It's a mind that's not dependent on sense experience. Well, we get that all the time temporarily in our life. We're hot and grumpy, and then we walk into an air-conditioned room, you know? And immediately, that hunger, you know, the, the striving, the, the struggling against the humidity, it's gone, right? There's contentment for a few seconds. And then, you know, everything's stiff. The whole world sort of opens up if we notice it. It's like we're happy until that deep habit of wanting to feed kicks in again. You know, and then we're looking for the best chair, or we're looking and wondering if I bought a, put a sweater in my backpack because it's a little too cold, right? <laughs> or whatever, you know, whatever the next kind of grasping, struggling with experiences. But we want to notice in our sits, in our daily life, these little temporary moments of equanimity, and we want to recognize what the mind is doing, how the mind is relating to sense experience in those moments. Because that is, in a way, opening us up to this other way of relating to experience, which is not about a suppression of grasping, but it's a transformation in understanding. It's realizing that in this moment, for example, we don't have to be dependent on experience. So right now, everybody here in this room is having a bodily experience, right? We have tactile experience. We're hearing sounds. We're seeing things, smelling and tasting things to some degree. And we're having mental experience. We have thoughts, emotions. And we just assume, because of habit, that this life this existence is completely dependent on those six things, the five physical senses and the activity of the mind. We did, doesn't that seem right that our existence seems completely dependent on these six things? What else is there? But the more we have noticed and gotten interested in moments of equanimity, moments of impartiality, moments of non-grasping, then we can begin to play with any moment. Because we kind of have a sense, it may be feeble, but we have some sense of what non-grasping is, not trying to feed on the moment, on, a, on sense experience. So we can just play with it right now. Like I mentioned, you know, it's like sometimes when I'm on retreat and someone's giving a talk, I practice this non-grasping, like not grasping, not trying to understand not being afraid that the teacher is going to say something and I'm going to really want it, you know? But just having the, the sort of confidence that whatever lands will land, whatever doesn't land, it won't land. And this is a nice metaphor for life, you know, to, to just sort of live with the eight, what the Buddha calls the eight worldly winds of gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute and praise and blame, to just live in this swirling, changing world of these eight worldly winds 
but not trying to maximize, you know, the food we get from the praise and from the uh, fame and from the pleasant experience and from the gain, the success, getting away from all the, the negative stuff. So it's really about temporary experiences of equanimity where the mind has enough internal happiness just from collecting the attention, just that experience of the unification of the mind or the building up of the energy when the mind isn't dispersed and distracted and scattered. That inner happiness leads to temporary equanimity. And then external happiness also leads to temporary equanimity when we get what we want. So, for example, if you can whip up a lot of desire for this program to be over, then when it's actually over, you're going to have a temporary experience of equanimity. You know, as you're walking out the door, you know, if you really wanted this to end, then that pain, so basically you create a lot of pain. I really want this to end. That's what we do as human beings all the time. I really want this moment to be other than it is. And then when it becomes other than it is, we get the opposite of the pain we've whipped up. That's how it is in this frictionless world we live in, we whip up a lot of pain and then we get the equal and opposite result when it changes. You know? So, I'm all alone in the world. I don't have a lover. And then we have a lover. And then we feel the relief. And then it's like, I'm imprisoned by this relationship. (laughs) And then we get the relief. And if we had enough perspective, we'd probably sob about what we do to ourselves collectively, you know, psychologically in our own minds as a culture, this kind of swinging back and forth. And the more we see that, the more this, this transformation of mind arises, like really getting that dependency on sense experience can't be the way to happiness, any kind of meaningful happiness, because it's impermanent, it's ungovernable. And we begin to be interested, in, at least, in an independence with sense experience. So how to be a human being in the world of sense experience. So it's not about being indifferent or removed from sense experience. It's about transforming our relationship to sense experience. That's really what equanimity is about. So I'll read a little bit more of Sharon's and then open it up for discussion. And then we'll continue the talk and discussion in the weeks ahead. Such balance does not mean we do not feel things anymore. Meditation does not turn us into gray vegetative blobs with all the feeling washed out. The Buddha taught that we can feel pleasure fully, without craving or clinging, without defining it as our ultimate happiness. We can feel pain fully without condemning it or hating it. And we can experience neutral events by being fully present so that they are not just fill-in times until something more exciting comes along. This non-reactivity is the state of equanimity and it leads us into freedom in each moment. 
then I'll skip a little bit. And then she says, equanimity's strength derives from a combination of understanding and trust. It is based on understanding that the conflict and frustration we feel when we can't control the world doesn't come from our inability to do so, but from the fact that we are trying to control the uncontrollable. We know better than to try to prevent the seasons from changing or the tide from coming in. Following autumn, winter comes. We may not prefer it, but we trust it because we understand and accept its rightful place in the larger cycle, a bigger picture. Can we apply the same wise balance to the cycles and tides of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience in our lives? And then she quotes an ancient Chinese poem. 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. So it would be nice to hear from people. Questions about the talk, of course, but also anything you've learned in your own life in terms of how you relate to sense experience, what seems to work, what doesn't seem to work in, this, in regards to equanimity. So what comes to mind? recently started meditating a couple of months ago and I can very much relate to that sense of of uh, having a surprising relief uh, starting to meditate I would set a timer um, initially at a half an hour which was excruciating uh, and I switched it to 15 minutes and then eventually to 10 <laughs> but um, but I would I would like you said I would build up I would whip up this when is that timer going to go? When is the timer going to go? When is the timer going to go? And then when it goes, oh, it went, and then I would end. And what I found after a while is I would do the same thing and experience the same uh, desire for it to be over. But then the thing would go off, and I would feel that, and I'd keep my eyes closed and go, oh, it rang. <laughs> and I feel that, that feeling of release and then stay there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, now I can meditate because I'm not worried about the thing going on. And then be there for another five or ten minutes in a state of relaxation. Yeah. So <laughs> I understand, I, I clearly understand that we create this tension yeah. that then releases, but it really wasn't there. I mean, I, I made it happen. Yeah. And exactly what you discovered is basically a very skillful way to meditate, just to do that more often, not to have to wait to when the bell goes off or the, the, the clock rings, but basically to die, because what we're doing is like uh, we, we create something and then we have to die to it. You know, whatever drama we create, we have to die to that, just in a sense of um, whatever bar we create, like when this gets over. And then... Now, because we can't just like wait till it gets over or wait till we get what we've just created, you know, in creating tension, like, oh, I want this person to love me, or oh, I want this job, or I want this at the end. But the way to die to it without actually getting that to feed off of it is to accept that it will never happen, as if it will never happen. So there you are sitting and there's knee pain. 
And so you could just wait until you can move and get the relief. Or you can get to the relief by becoming the person who doesn't need that pain to go away. So as if this pain were never to go away, I'm going to be that person now. As if this desire never gets quenched. As if this fear never leaves me. So we can, we can get little moments of equanimity all the time. And exactly the same move that you discovered in your practice. And thanks so much for sharing that. What's your name? Adam. Thanks, Adam. That was great. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Helen. Because the feeding frenzy depends on tension, you know. So there, there are many ways to interrupt the grasping, the, the sort of seemingly endless ways that our mind grasps or clings or gets attached, gets identified with sense experience. Many ways to sort of uh, intervene. One of one of them is to relax, because. Grasping, identification, attachment, all of the, you know, the ways we talk about this feeding frenzy depends on tension. And I think the car is not a relaxing environment. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because you're not doing a whole lot. Yeah. Like, like, I can't check your email. Uh, you right. can't check your email? <laughs> Well, you might, you might want to, like, a lot of times we stumble on something that works, but we don't want to be dependent on just stumbling upon it. So it can be useful, in hindsight, to reflect on how it worked. Because so much in the, the way the Buddha taught, it's like breaking things down and understanding cause and effect. And you might discover that when your mind said soften, or however you, you did it, Helen, that what was alive, there was a particular view or understanding alive in the mind that maybe you would call compassion. And, and the more you get to sort of the primal cause for that correction, that letting go of grasping, the more potent it becomes. So you're not dependent on you saying soften to your mind, but you're understanding this switch or transformation in view from somebody who believes that feeding, that attachment, that struggling is the way to happiness to a wiser, more grounded perspective that understands struggling is suffering and I care about the suffering. And sometimes it's awesome, the upsetting is awesome, so come in, but 
Yeah. And that's that's a nice little teaching on anatta, the not self. Like we think there's one reality, but who we are or how we are in a particular moment can be radically different moment by moment. Like we can have you know, like Adam just suggested, you know, he can be there struggling, 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 and then the alarm goes off and his reality has completely transformed. Now, what actually changed? The only thing that changed was his understanding or his view of things. This moment, he's thinking, this is not okay, it has to end. The next moment, he's thinking, I'm so happy it ended. But the reality is black and white, from being a suffering human being to being a non-suffering human being. It works, it wor you're right, it doesn't work if it comes out of fear and greed. Uh -huh. Like, I really don't like to be tight, so I'm going to do this. Then. Yeah. But if the mind has broken down, like if, if Adam really keeps doing something like this and really gets interested in it, he will eventually begin to understand uh, more fundamentally what's going on. And the mind will uh, be able to, it's like a little wormhole, it will be able to go right to that transformation of view. It won't be dependent on this sort of setting up this, this sort of weird thing where you're struggling with your sit and then the alarm goes off and then you feel the release. It will be able, it will understand that, oh, I can just let go now. But it has to understand what letting go is and that's not an easy insight. That insight comes, yeah. Both. I mean, it depends. Both words, or both phrases can be useful depending on what the medicine you need. Yeah, Bonnie. going to get it. You're absolutely not going to get it. Make peace with that. That will stun the mind for a while. <laughs> when you make, when you actually make peace with it, and your world will look different. When you're not assuming that happiness comes when you get what you want. So you have to like, you have to have a bigger, more vast view of who or what you are. Because when it, we have a narrow view, then it really does make sense that getting this will lead to happiness. But when we take a wider, deeper, vaster view of ourselves, then it, then it doesn't make sense. This is a relatively little thing. And if I'm not dependent on it, if I'm independent of whether it goes this way or that way, then it's easy to be equanimous. Equanimity is actually the easiest thing in the world. It doesn't, because it's, it's the absence of struggling. It's not about doing something to be equanimous. It's about letting go of struggle. But we struggle when we have a narrow, a limited view of our lives. And we actually think that 
getting this meal is going to make us happy. So it's a question of where you think happiness is. Is happiness in being free, or is unhappiness in getting something that we know already intellectually is just temporary, and we don't even know where it's going to lead? It could lead to hell. You know, we don't actually know what getting that thing is going to lead to. But we tell ourselves, like Adam said, we whip up this idea that if this, like Joko Beck calls this, the promise that's never kept. Time for one more. Yeah, I forgot your name. Eric. Yes. So I'm going to graduate college in about a year. Um, and so I'm trying to decide basically what I'm going to do after that. You know, what I want to sing and stuff like that. I'm Houston trying to say, well, I want to be with them. So I want a good job. And so I'm wondering, in your promise, and your kind of accepting situation for what it is, how do you go about making those sorts of decisions? Yeah. Well, use the image of the earth. I, I mean, I love it because, you know, how does the earth decide when spring's going to come in or when summer's going to come in? It doesn't. And, and actually, the mind, body, the system here that we call ourselves, it's like the earth. It's like nature. It is nature. And Mark or Eric, your life is going to unfold whether you're tight or whether you're relaxed, right? If you have a lot of fear about making the right choice, that uh, tightness doesn't actually make you more skillful at choosing, right? It's just tightness. Actually, what makes us really skillful is to be more sensitive. The more sensitive, the more connected we are in the moment, the more information, in a sense, that we're connected to, then whatever choice we make in any moment will be coming out of more information. So it's, I'm not saying it's a better choice, but it's a choice that's coming out of more complete picture than if we're narrow and being narrow and tight, our perspective, our information is more limited. And so the choices we're make, making will be arising out of that more limited information. And it's a little bit like what I was saying with Bonnie, that we have to let go of the idea that our choices have to be correct or right. Because it's, it's too simplistic of a view that there's a right and a wrong choice. They're just different choices. And ultimately, there is absolutely no way to know what's right. But we can be aware of our intention, you know, our intention not to suffer. That, that's the only, in a sense, that's the only place right and wrong makes any sense in, in a human life, is am I relating in this moment to the choices or whatever from a, a rather narrow point of view or broad, vast perspective? Tight or released place? Because that says something. If we're relating from a tight place, we're setting emotion tightness. If we're relating from a released place, we're setting emotion more freedom, more release. Good luck. <laughs> so let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath, or maybe a couple breaths.
remember in our homework to notice moments of equanimity, explore ways of going beyond our dependency on our sense experience into a freedom or an independence. So we can report back to the group in the weeks ahead. And remember the beautiful aspiration, not to be shy about it, to live and practice in a way that not only supports the happiness and ease, skillfulness in our own lives, but is a cause for happiness, for freedom, for harmony, for all beings. So why not? Ex- uh... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.